Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. From their very beginning, the Hashashin, or Order of Assassins, inspired fantastical stories. The tellers of these stories were consumed by the Shia Muslim order's doctrinal secrecy, their militancy, the remoteness of their fortress, Alamut, and above all, their unfeeling cruelty and blind loyalty to their leader. They carried out targeted killings with haunting efficiency, always by dagger and in public places. The founder of the Hashashin was called Hassan Isaba, a former Seljuk bureaucrat whose rebellion earned him exile from the growing Seljuk empire. He was said to dose his mercenaries with hashish and opium in order to manipulate their behavior. In the 1830s, Austrian orientalist Joseph von Hammer-Perkstahl recounted one of the foundational moments of the Hashashin in the first monograph ever written about the sect. According to Hammer Pergstahl, Hassan had a way of using traumatic events to manipulate those around him. Upon being captured by his adversaries, Hammer Pergstahl writes, His enemies and those who envied him conveyed him with their own hands into a ship which was sailing to Africa. He was scarcely at sea when a violent gale lashed up the waves and filled the whole crew, except Hassan, with terror. He, calm and raised above all fear, answered one of his fellow passengers who asked him the cause of such security. Our Lord has promised me that no evil shall befall me. The sea becoming calm some minutes afterwards, the voyagers were filled with universal confidence, and from that moment became Hassan's disciples and faithful partisans. Thus, to increase his credit, did he avail himself of accidents and natural occurrences, as if he possessed the command of both. The coolness with which he confronted the peril of the swelling sea gave him, with the apparent rule of the elements, real authority over the mind. In the dark night of the dungeon and the storm, he meditated black projects of ambition and revenge. In the midst of the crash of the falling tower and the thunder and lightning and billows of the storm, he laid the foundation of his union of assassins for the ruin of thrones and the wreck of dynasties. (laughs) Was that what you were looking for? Yes, that's what I was looking for. Legends of Hassan, his assassins, and their fortress, Alamut, have circulated around Eurasia and North Africa for centuries, mingling with documented facts and legitimate historical interpretations to create a complex narrative that was just as much fiction as it was history. Most history buffs have encountered the Hashashin because of their dealings with the Knights Templar during the Crusades. Most ordinary people have encountered this history in an oblique way. The words assassin and assassination are derived from hashashin, a derogatory term used by their enemies to describe Hassan's purportedly drugged-up, trained killers. This episode will use new and exciting work by historians of medieval Iran and Syria in order to parse out fact from fiction and arrive at an impartial understanding of the infamous and willfully misunderstood Order of Assassins or Hashashin. I'm Marissa. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Before 
before we slip into the shadows of this episode, we want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We are over halfway to our goal of $300 a month. And when we hit that, we'll be getting new recording equipment. Woo! So thank you, you generous souls who are already giving, and particularly our auger and excavator level patrons. A very special thanks to... Colin, Peggy, Chris, Danielle, Maggie, and Lauren, who are fueling the engine of our podcasting machinery. Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can be. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. So just a note about terms. As will be made clear by the end of this episode, the epithets assassins and hashashin are controversial. We use them in the opening because they trigger immediate recognition. The Hashashin have been mythologized so extensively by Europeans that it revolutionized the way that people of European descent conceive of political murder. For the rest of the episode, we'll refer to these historical peoples using the name they used to describe themselves. They were the Nazari. The Nazari were an Ismaili Shia sect who occupied a stronghold called Alamut in the mountains south of the Caspian Sea in the 11th and 12th centuries. The Nazari were a sect of a sect of a sect. The major split in Islam between Sunni and Shia happened after the death of Muhammad the Prophet in the 630s of the Common Era. Today, 85% of Muslims in the world are Sunni and 15% are Shia. In the 760s CE, the Shia encountered another succession crisis for the Imamate. They split further into the Ismailis and the Twelvers based on which candidate they backed as the true imam, or spiritual leader. Medieval Islam was characterized by constant shifts and splinters of power that were both religious and political at the same time. A defining characteristic of Shia Islam is that everything is one. There is no conception of religion separate from state or public separate from private. They are all part of an interlocking and unified whole. Religion is political and politics are religious. And it is all part of the Islamic ummah or community. At the beginning of our story, the center of Islamic power was the Abbasid Caliphate. They had shared a common cause with Shia Muslims when they were trying to gain power over the Umayyads. But once they kind of established their empire, they turned against the Shia, right? Many Shia who had lived in the traditional heartlands of Islam that were outside of the Arabian Peninsula, such as Iran and Syria, migrated to North Africa where they established independent states. This sowed the seeds of Abbasid decline. By the 900s, the Abbasid Caliphate began to crumble, especially in the region of Iran. This led to the establishment of several regional successor states. Historians call this the Iranian Intermezzo because it marks a brief period of home rule in between Arab, uh, which would be the Abbasids, and Turkish, which would be the Seljuk Turks, um, domination. During this Iranian intermezzo, the Twelver Shias established the Bayid Confederacy. An Ismaili contingent established the Fatimid Caliphate in 909 CE from the Shia stronghold in North Africa. So we have these two uh, Shia powers that are existing uh, at the same time as this declining Abbasid state. Under the Fatimids, Ismaili Shias achieved the one and only unification of the caliphate, which is temporal rule, kind of more uh, secular rule, with the imamate, which is the spiritual rule. So at the same time that Iranians are fending off imperial incursions by the Arab Abbasids and Seljuk Turks, Shias were resisting Sunni supremacy and the Twelvers and Ismailis were competing for Shia ascendancy. There were both political and religious planes of conflict going on at once. During this tumultuous century, the Fatimids conquered Egypt. They attempted to conquer Syria as well, but struggled against the Seljuk Turks in order to do it. The Seljuks were capitalizing on Abbasid weakness, grabbing up territories that had emancipated themselves from Abbasid power. The Fatimids' military and political successes against the Seljuks were limited. On the religious plane, however, the Fatimids were stronger each day. The Fatimids launched a Shia missionary program called Dawah. 
Dais, or Shia proselytizers and propagandists, were sent to Iraq, Iran, Syria, Bahrain, Yemen, and around the Maghreb, uh, the Mediterranean, North Africa. Though militarily and administratively weak, the Fatimids used Dawah to establish a network of Ismaili Shia cells across North Africa and the Middle East. Their wildly successful Dawah gave the Fatimids political legitimacy and the Ismailis uh, religious authority. The Da'is were an exclusive group. Their backgrounds were investigated, they took strict vows, and underwent extensive educational programs. They were thus highly effective. The Fatimid Da'is remained powerful, especially in Iran and Syria, even as the Fatimid state apparatus began to, de- to deteriorate. Right, so as the Fatimid state is kind of falling apart, their religious mission is thriving and kind of like doing better and better, despite the fact that the state is falling apart. Due to Turkish invasions, crusading Europeans, and growing Sunni influence, the Shia Fatimid Caliphate permanently declined after the 1040s CE. It was during this time of vulnerability that the Nazari became the primary force behind Ismaili power and influence. In the 1090s, the Ismailis suffered another succession crisis, causing the establishment of a new Ismaili sect called the Nazari. They differentiated themselves from other Ismailis because they maintained their allegiance to the Imam al-Nizar, an Imam who was professed to be illegitimate by other Ismailis, right? So we have this constant splintering. So the Nazaris, once again, another splinter off of Ismaili Shias. A disaffected and exiled former Seljuk administrator named Hassan E. Sabah rose to prominence during the Nazari's formation. We introduced him at the top of the episode. Hassan had been appointed Dai to Dalem, a mountainous region within Iran that lay outside of Seljuk control. Knowing the Fatimids had effectively lost their empire, uh, facing hostility from rival sects and attacks by the imperial Seljuk Turks, the Nazaris sought to establish their own independent principality. In 1090, Hassan captured a Dalami fortress called Alamut. Alamut became a base for decades of Nazari revolt. Historian Marshall Hodgson writes that the, quote, pattern of the Nazari revolt eased almost imperceptibly into one of a permanent Nazari state with a fixed, though scattered, territory, unquote. So slowly they kind of just became a, a fixed institution, a state. The Fatimid Dawa had made Iran a very fertile place for a radical Ismaili sect, The Nazari maintained very strict doctrines, yet their message was attractive to Shias who resented Sunni supremacy, as well as Iranian and Syrian peoples who resented Seljuk Turk occupation. Under Hassan, the Nazari continued the Dawah started by the Fatimids. Hassan was sending Nazari Da'is to areas such as Syria, where the Fatimids and Seljuks laid waste to ancestral homelands in their bids for territory. Right, So there's all this resentment building up, and then there's these missionaries coming to preach, right? There, Nazari doctrine, framed as the new preaching, found eager ears. The Nazari drew Shia support from areas that had been influenced by the Fatimid Dawah. During this time of missionary and political expansion, the Nazari abandoned the ailing Fatimid state and mounted an armed revolt against Seljuk Turk incursions. For many, the Nazari represented a legitimate Shia challenge to Sunni orthodoxy. To Iranians and increasingly Syrians, the Nazari were their best hope at resisting Sunni Turkish authority. Under Hassan, the Nazari conquered small but strategic fortresses in remote Iran and Syria. Nazari fortresses were regularly attacked by the Seljuk Turks, who interpreted their radical religious philosophy, their decentralized structure, and their martial prowess as a terrorist threat. The Seljuks found the Nazari's mountainous citadels impossible to penetrate. Since they were small in numbers and surrounded on all sides by hostile combatants, whether they be Sunni, Arab, Turkic, or rival Shia groups, the Nazari operated using targeted kills, ominous threats, and incessantly shifting alliances. At first, these tactics resembled those used by small, hostile Muslim factions for centuries. 
Political murder was nothing new, but over time, the Nazari refined these tactics and made them central to their political strategies. Historian Farhad Daftari writes that even though political murder was an old strategy, the Nazari, quote, did assign a major political role to the policy of assassination, which they utilized rather openly in a spectacular and intimidating fashion, end quote. They often use sinister mafia-like warnings to inspire fear and uncertainty in their enemies. One medieval travelogue describes a likely fictionalized encounter between the Nazari and Saint-Louis IX of France. According to the travelogue, an envoy of Nazari Fidais bullied Saint-Louis by proffering a case of daggers and provocatively displaying a shroud or winding sheet to intimidate him. So, like, I just imagine this, like, um, mime going out where they're like, ooh, look at all these daggers, look at the shroud, like, to like intimidate pulling this. it out of his sleeve. Right, like, the time. like, hey, and, like, queens playing in the background or something. <laughs> Um, so, though the story may be apocryphal, this aspect of Nazari strategy is well documented. Having few resources and many enemies, the Nazari used the threat of assassination just as effectively as they used the actual material threat of death against their enemies. So, the, the threat of possible assassination was used even more than the actual assassination, right? And it worked. In the 1250s, on the eve of the Mongol invasion of Iran, Muslim factions were still expressing their fear of Nazari assassinations. The chief Qadi of Kazvan, for example, appeared before the Mongol Khan in chainmail. So the Mongols are here and they're kind of receiving uh, envoys from all these various places that they're trying to, to take over, right? And one of them shows up in chainmail. When asked why he's wearing the suit, he told the Khan that he wore it at all times under his clothes to protect him from the looming threat of Nizari assassination. The Mongols turned away all Ismaili embassies and instituted special precautions to guard the Khan against attacks from Nizari Fidai. So they took this seriously, right? When the Mongols invaded Iran in 1256, their top priority was neutralizing the Nizari threat. This was all done under a cloak of secrecy. The Nazari kept their doctrines and their strategies confidential. Hassan deployed Fidais, who were dedicated personnel trained to infiltrate enemy leadership. This specially trained group came to represent Nazari political strategy to the outside world. Even so, in Iran, the Fidais were never an organized group. In Syria, the Nazari Fidais formed a core of dedicated insurgents, which is perhaps where we get the idea that the Nazari were a secret order of assassins. In Nazari communities, there were novices who were young devotees new to the order, but there's also a general population of lay people. Not all Nazaris were Fidais. Those who were trained at Alamut or some satellite fortress and then were deposited into the households of important politicians all over the region. The Nazari Fidais were talented at deception. For example, a vizier in service to the Seljuks named Kiwam was exposed as a secret Ismaili. He successfully won the allegiance of the Sultan's son, Mahmud. Kiwam used this influence to secure the retreat of the Sultan's army, led by a commander named Shigir from Alamut. Once Mahmud succeeded his father, Kiwam secured revenge against Commander Shagir by convincing the new sultan that Shagir was a traitor. He was imprisoned and put to death by Mahmud. Nazari Fadais often inveigled their way into the confidences of important dignitaries in order to execute a political murder commissioned by Hassan or his successors. This secrecy prompted rumor and conjecture among their enemies. At the same time, the fallout of their targeted killings triggered resentment and hostility that shaped those rumors. To recap, because I know this is very complicated, Kiwam uh, was found to be a secret Ismaili, and and later he was actually charged with, um, you know, kind of having been an insurgent. But he made friends with uh, the son of the sultan, and by way of that was able to get... uh, the sultan to remove his army from Alamut, so saving the Ismailis, right? And then after uh, the sultan died and his son succeeds him, Kawam was able to punish the commander who had 
laid siege on Alma by having him executed, right? So people are thinking, oh, my God, like, this guy who was a very important um, vizier in uh, in the um, Seljuk Turk court, he was actually a secret Ismaili who's, like, who, like, lived his whole life undercover. It's just very... People kind of freaked out about this, right? It's very CIA. Very CIA. Very Jack Ryan. Mm. So historians are able to trace where some of these rumors originated. For example, there's no evidence that Hassan or his successors systematically dosed their assassins with hashish or opium. Historians believe that this myth was manufactured by the Nazari's Sunni enemies or rival Shia sects. They suspect this because the hashish myth draws on one of Islam's most important prohibitions, the use of intoxicants. Spreading propaganda about the Nazari substance use made them an illegitimate sect, heretics in the eyes of their Muslim rivals. Moreover, it discredited Nazari doctrine because it offered an alternate explanation for why this small Ismaili spinoff was able to attract supporters all across the Middle East and inspire the loyalty they needed to carry out what was essentially a suicide mission, right? So these public targeted kills would often end in the death of the assassin. So they're trying to explain how uh, people... Where people are getting, where is the source of loyalty coming from? That people are willing to die for the cause. Rather than their compelling doctrine, the new preaching, and a righteous cause, the Nazari were, according to their enemies, motivated by their unholy addiction to drugs. One 13th century Persian historian wrote that the Nazari were not only rebels, but apostates, quote, as vile as dogs, accursed, with evil machinations and unclean beliefs, end quote. Though several aspects of Hashashin mythology were initiated by their Muslim rivals, its most enduring aspects were proliferated later in European Christendom. The Nazari's denunciation by the Sunni establishment provided Christian observers with what William Brenner calls, quote, a clear caricature that they could feed into any number of narratives, a process that persisted over centuries. Though the story of the Nazari began in Iran, most English speakers know about the Order of Assassins by way of their Syrian branch. The Syrian Nazari provoked the ire of both the Sunni Muslim establishment and the Seljuk Empire when they used the outbreak of the First Crusade in 1095 as an opportunity to strengthen their tenuous position. Syrian Nazaris struck controversial alliances with European crusaders against their Muslim rivals and imperial adversaries. The fortunes of 11th and 12th century Nazari were shaped by the sequence of armed conflicts we now call the Crusades. After their successful seizure of Jerusalem in the 1090s, Frankish crusaders established four crusader states, the kingdoms of Jerusalem, Edessa, Antioch, and Tripoli. The First Crusade also brought what William Brenner calls the roving military orders to the crusader states. These roving military orders included the Knights Hospitaller and the Knights Templar. The Knights Hospitaller and Knights Templar were military orders, yes, but instead of owing their fealty to a secular lord, these knights were loyal to God. They theoretically took monastic vows and vows of poverty. In reality, they were relatively well-funded by donations and the rents they drew from their land holdings in continental Europe. Because of the complex landscape caused by the Crusader conflict, the Syrian Nazaris were initially much less successful than their Iranian brethren. Alliances shifted quickly in the Crusader states. They established agreements with Christians and Muslims, Shia and Sunni, Europeans and Arabs. They occasionally deployed fidais to carry out targeted kills, but... More so than the Iranian Nizari, they were vulnerable to massacres when alliances shifted. The uniqueness of their circumstances necessitated that they establish a local base of operations, so they became increasingly autonomous from their Iranian foundations. The Syrian Nizari came into their own in the 1100s. This is their golden uh, era 
you know, if you will. Um, and it's kind of occurring after the period of Iranian Nazari decline. So as one sect of Nazari are more powerful, then they're declining. The next one is kind of rising. In the 1100s, they came to dominate the Jabal Bahra region of northwestern Syria. The first Frankish victim of the Syrian Nazari was Raymond II, Count of Tripoli. The count and two of his knights were stabbed to death by Nazari Fidais at the southern gate of the city in March 1152. The Nazari never revealed their motivation for targeting Raymond II. His assassination, however, triggered non-sect-specific massacres of Muslims by Frankish crusaders. So even though this, it's the Nazari, which are a small sect of Ismaili, which are a small sect of Shia, which is a small sect of Islam, um, their assassination of Raymond just kind of resulted in massacre of all Muslims by Frankish crusaders because they're kind of unwilling to acknowledge that that not all Muslims are part of the same sect. Perhaps as restitution or perhaps as a way of guaranteeing an end to massacres of Syrian Muslims, the Nazari were forced to pay an annual tribute of 2,000 gold pieces to the Knights Templar. Though the assassination of Raymond II led to a period of vulnerability for the Syrian Nazari, they consolidated their power in Syria the following decade under the leadership of Rashid al-Din Sinan. Sinan had been trained at Alamut and was sent by the then imam of the Iranian Nazari, Hassan II, to Syria as chief da'i of Basra. There, Sinan fortified the Nazari fortresses, resolved internal disputes, systematized relations with the crusader states, and reorganized the Fida'is into a corps of insurgents. Sinan's leadership coincided with the temporary autonomy of the Syrian Nazari from Alamut. After Sinan's death, Alamut reestablished control over the Syrian branch of the Nazari until the Mongols captured Alamut in 1256 and the Syrian Nazari submitted to the Mamluks in 1273. Christian chroniclers of the Crusades employed what Farhad Daftari calls imaginative ignorance in their portrayal of the Nazari. They combined a negative, pre-existing view of Islam and maintained ignorance of the sectarian divisions that shaped the Nazari worldview. William Brenner puts it nicely, Western interpretations of the Nazaris that continue to this day were forged during this time, including distortions of their rituals, leadership, and very name. The most influential of these chroniclers was Marco Polo. In his travelogue, Marco Polo created the mythical Old Man of the Mountain, who was purportedly the Nazari leader. He combined the remoteness of Alamut with preconceived notions about the Garden of Paradise in Islamic doctrine. So in his travelogue, uh, right, he has one chapter that is about the old man of the mountain who is supposed to be uh, Hassan and also kind of Sinan. He's just this, you know, uh, generic guy. Um, And this is almost the entire chapter. It's very, very short. Okay. Um, He wrote of the Nazari fortress. So this is Marco Polo writing about the Nazari fortress, quote, In it were erected pavilions and palaces, the most elegant that can be imagined, all covered with gilding and exquisite painting. And there were runnels, too, flowing freely with wine and milk and honey and water and numbers of ladies and of the most beautiful damsels in the world, who could play on all manner of instruments and sung most sweetly and danced in a manner that was charming to behold. So these women existed here in this garden, quote, for the delectation of all its inmates. For the old man desired to make his people believe that it is actually paradise. No man was allowed to enter the garden save those whom he intended to be his ashashin, end quote. Right? So this idea of, this this is all that he writes about the Nazari as a people, right? Um, So the old man of the mountain was used by medieval chroniclers to refer to both Hassan, who is the first Iranian Nazari leader that we mentioned, who had that kind of moment on the boat where he inspired fear amongst his captors, right? And Sinan, the Syrian Nazari leader who was born seven years after Hassan's death, right? Even more strikingly, their rules were initiated in entirely different centuries and occurred over 1,000 miles apart. Still, the two men are often combined into one sinister old man of the mountains. 
The Marco Polo example demonstrates how the mythology of the Nazari was part of a larger process of identity formation that was happening as a result of Christendom's encounter with the Islamic world more generally. During the Crusades, the mythology of the Nazari assassins was proffered to magnify the Saracen threat to Christendom. And this is a complicated phenomenon, really, because in some cases, Christian chroniclers portrayed Saracens or Mohammedans in a positive light. Salah Adin, often anglicized to Saladin, was admired and praised for his knightly qualities by much of Christendom. There was even a widespread rumor that Salah Adin had secretly been knighted. Um, brilliant historians have sought to explain these contradictions for decades. Some suggest that Christian chroniclers borrowed the negative views of the Nazari from their Sunni enemies who labeled them as deviant Muslims. Others suggest that it is one thing to admire a single Muslim figure and another to depict a Muslim collective. William Brenner, for example, argues that Christendom dismissed the Nazari as a homogeneous menacing force. They never attempted to humanize any Nazaris as they did with Salah Adin. Right, so they're thinking of them all as, like, nameless, faceless people, like some nameless, faceless right. army, right? So that's different than thinking about an actual person who's a Muslim. In fact, chroniclers dehumanize them by emphasizing their indoctrination, fanaticism, and blind obedience to their leader. Their purported use of hashish aided in this goal, rendering the fidais as mindless zombies brainwashed by drugs and sex and motivated to kill by a psychopathic cult leader, the Old Man of the Mountain. The Old Man of the Mountain character appeared many times in the following centuries in learned circles. Francis Bacon, in his advertisement touching a holy war, compared the Anabaptists to the infamous Nazari, citing their blind obedience to their rulers and secret doctrine in direct disobedience to law. According to Bacon, such a group was, quote, an engine built against human society, end quote. And one example I think that I just wanted to, that I want to interject here about the old man in the mountain is at one point there is uh, like a messenger who is sent from the Seljuks to uh, Hassan and he, you know, says you, you must uh, obey and give in to the siege that there were perpetuating on you kind of. And Hassan uh, you know, says, excuse me, what do you want? And then the guy says again, you know, you must do this or whatever. Hassan looks over at one of his devotees who's sitting next to him and says, kill yourself. And the guy just kills himself. And then Hassan was like, so what do you want again? And then the guy was like, holy shit. Um, and then the Fidei just killed the messenger. And that's probably apocryphal, but that's the kind of uh, story that kept repeating over and over again. That it reminds me a little bit of the uh, Spartans in 300, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where the way that they treated that one messenger, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Gradually after the dissolution of the Syrian Nazaria Fidais Corps, the strategy of political murder was reframed as unchristian, a move that cemented the association of political murder with Islam, despite the very obvious universality of the practice. At the First Council of Leon in 1245, a papal bull was issued to excommunicate Frederick II, King of Sicily and Jerusalem. The document justified the excommunication thusly, quote, There are people who, with a terrible unhumanity and loathsome cruelty, thirst for the death of others and cause them to be killed by assassins especially since some persons of high standing, fearing to be killed in such a way, are forced to beg for their own safety from the masters of these assassins, and thus so to speak to redeem their life in a way that is an insult to Christian dignity. So these people are made to beg for their lives from these murderous assassins, and it's just also unchristian. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the Knights Templar were also killing it. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, 
Over time, the term assassin began to be used in a generic way, detached from any direct reference to the Nizari. The first generic reference to assassins that historians have found is in Dante's Divine Comedy, where one of the characters confined to hell was a treacherous assassin. Still, some European scholars tied the strategy of assassination to the Nizari specifically. Voltaire, for example, identified assassination as a crime similar to poisoning, an act, quote, most cowardly and deserving of punishment, end quote. In his bid to discredit fanaticism of all kinds, Voltaire called the Nazari, quote, wretched little people of the mountains, end quote, which there's also kind of this aspect of like this Highlanders mm. thing where like people automatically like hate Highlanders and say that they're all ignorant or whatever. So there's that too. Um, he wrote that fanatics were ruled by, quote, rascals who put the dagger into their hands. They resembled that old man of the mountain who, it is said, made imbeciles taste the joys of paradise, end quote. Right? So this is like going down in history as like what the Nazari were like, right? Um, and no, there was not this old man of the mountain who found all of these, quote, imbeciles, you know, right. uh, and then, you know, who made them do drugs and gave them sexy mm. women. And then was like, no, you got to kill someone for me so that I'll give you more drugs or whatever. That's not right. how it worked. So though their representations incorporated myth as well as fact, the Enlightenment philosophs' interests in conspiracy, as well as secret orders and political murder, sparked scholarship on the Nazari. So, Hammer Perkstall's semi-fictionalized history, part of which we quoted at the top of the show, was written in the 18-teens amidst several other volumes authored by other Orientalists. Hammer Perkstall's account remained the dominant historical narrative of the Nazari for over a century. From the 1930s on, historians were able to uncover inconsistencies in 19th century Orientalist histories. Since the 1970s, historians such as Farhad Daftari, William Brenner, and Marshall Hodgson have worked to accurately portray Nazari history and to thoughtfully trace the origins of the myths that clouded our understanding of them for nearly a millennium. The narrative of the Nazari presented here drew heavily on their painstaking work. There was, and I think still is, some Orientalism and general racism that colors European and American understandings of the Nazari assassins. Today, the Nazari are regarded as the most numerous and influential of all Shia sects. In the 1840s, the Nazari were exiled from their ancestral headquarters in Iran and relocated to Mumbai and then to Europe and Africa. The Nazari are known for their progressive reforms concerning women's rights. So I give you this brief genealogy of the Nazari up to today, just to make it clear that the medieval Nazari are no more similar to their contemporary counterparts than medieval crusading Christendom is to modern Europe. Popular history, however, has yet to take note of this fact. Most recently, in the field of terrorism studies, semi-fictional narratives of the Nazari have been used to construct a genealogy of Islamic terrorism. They draw through lines from today's Islamic fundamentalism to the Nazari's radical sect of Shia Islam, from today's international terrorist cells to the Nazari's status as subversive dissidents, and from today's suicide bombings to the Nazari's high-profile public killings, which they knew would most probably end in their deaths. The similarities are compelling, but they rely on sensationalized anecdotes and the entirely imaginary binary that differentiates an exotic and fanatical East from a rational and pragmatic West. This despite the fact that white assassins of European descent are glorified in popular culture. High-end hitmen, mafiosos, Brutus, the Black Widow, etc. Black Widow, her role in the Avengers as a, as a reformed assassin, she still is being sent to kill people, but now she's killing bad guys and not unknown entities. But then... Right, purportedly. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you also just have like Barry, which don't get me wrong, I love Barry. The the show Barry and he's like a hitman, but yeah. he's like kind of adorable and sweet and funny. And he's like trying to get out of that game, but like still it's also kind of cool when he's hitmanning. Like when he's doing his actual job where he's killing people, he seems kind of 
that's the only time he really seems cool, and all the yeah. other times mm-hmm. he's kind of like a turd. Yeah. So you know, there, there's just and there's um, endless John Wick. John Wick, obviously, John Wick is the current ultimate assassin. I don't know who John Wick is. Uh, Keanu Reeves plays him. There are three current films. Okay. There. All right. We love them in this household. Okay. Well, I'm happy for you. Um, and also just sort of all those Jack Ryan, CIA, like uh, NSA, white whatever. people. Yeah. <laughs> when they're white, they're right. cool. Right. When they're not white, they're scary, it's, I guess. Yeah. You know, there there's something there's something to that. But the infamous legacy of the Hashashin can be attributed, we know now that, that we've had legitimate historians working on this, right? It's attributed to their isolation, their unblemished military record, and the fact that they provoked the ire of many enemies through complex political machinations, right? They're, they just basically have more enemies than friends, right? But our misperceptions of hashish-smoking, fanatical, cloaked assassins, brainwashed by a charismatic leader and dispatched into the courts of crusader states to topple Christendom, those popular illusions problematize how we define terrorism, Mm -hmm. right? So consider the question of what characteristics must a group have in order to be labeled terrorists. Right now... Uh, It seems like religion, skin color, and ethnicity remain good indicators of whether someone will be labeled a terrorist more than their tactics. And we see this with the Hashashin as well, right? So, yeah, they were terrorists. They, They... they played on people's fear. Not all of them, right. but but some of the Fidai, especially the Fidai core in Syria, yes, played on people's fear of assassination, um, intimidated people, uh, carried out targeted killings but kept them secret so no one had any idea it was coming. Like, yeah, that is a terrorist organization. So, mm-hmm. so you know, there's no denying that. But that seems obvious to people. Right. What seems less obvious to people is like... I don't know, like the KKK or whatever. Like, why aren't they terrorists? You know, um, the alt-right. School shooters. Like, why aren't they terrorists? Yeah. You know. um, Sarah and I were just talking about this in the um, episode on conspiracy theories and um, the Illuminati that 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 I wrote because there is... There's a similar sort of blindness in America and Europe, um, you know, in the quote-unquote West, to the organizedness of these, right, like school shooters and um, and active shooters, right? Because they're or all they're all white people, the mafia, or the right, but but in in particular the the, the modern day example because. They're, a lot of them are connected to the incel network or they're connected to the neo-Nazi movement. But because they're white and they're being like t- uh, talked about as if they're these lone wolves who are one-offs and they they don't represent a larger community of terrorists. Right. They're, one bad apple exactly, ruins the right. rest of them. Whereas you yeah. see if one brown person who is Muslim commits an act of violence then it's, oh, of course it's a terrorist uh, Muslim radical sect, right? Right. There's that automatic assumption in the U.S. Right. And the strange thing about the Hashashin is that, like, the Nazari were um, not considered to be legitimate Shias by many Shia and by all Sunni people. Like, they were considered to to not be legitimate Muslims. Sure. Um, And this is not because of Hashish or sex or anything like that. That stuff didn't happen. It's because of really tiny, minute doctrinal things. Right, right, right. right? Um, But it's funny because... They're not Muslim enough to be Muslim, but as soon as they do these horrible things, all of Christendom is like, oh, that's what Muslims are like. Right. And this is why the Saracens are such a threat, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like they're able, they can use it in one way, or whatever way suits them. Mm-hmm. So, and there's this uh, feigned ignorance of not understanding all the different sects of Islam. I have no doubt that the Frankish crusaders, or at least the people who were, like, their leaders, mm-hmm. knew that there were several different sects of Islam and knew which who was fighting who. They knew all that shit. Oh, yeah. They didn't care, mm-hmm. right? Um, because, like, the, the bigger enemy in general was Saracen, so they kind of, like, let their Frankish crusaders, who were thirsting for blood after the assassination of um, Raymond II, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah, you know, have at it, massacre these Muslims or whatever. Right. So it's 
it's just um, an interesting, you know, and that's not to say that, that the like, I'm not trying to say like, oh, everyone's racist and no Muslims are terrorists and not like that. It's not that it's, it's that we unconsciously have these preconceived notions about certain religions or cultures or people, ethnicities, regions of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that color, how we categorize them in our brains. It's not on purpose. It's, it's, it's just happens. Um, and that's Orientalism, man. Right. And got to read that Edward Said. Uh, you know, we know because of how race relations are kind of tense right now in America that there's a lot of uh, sort of popular articles and things going around about what it feels like to be a person of color in America mm-hmm. and that you, when you walk into a room, you know that you represent all black people mm-hmm. because anything that you do is just what black people do. Sure. But it's the same sort of thing like, right. you know, five out of the ten white people in the room can be assholes, but that doesn't mean all whites are assholes or it doesn't come out that way, you know? Right. Um, because when you're white and you're a majority and you kind of, like, have political and cultural power, you – one person doesn't have to represent everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's kind of the same thing. The Nazari, when it suited Christendom, when it suited the Crusaders or even – Enlightenment philosophers or whatever, when it suited them to kind of denigrate Islam, yeah. then the Nazari are the perfect example of how horrible Saracens can be, right? Um, you know, it's just, it's kind of interesting that this idea of Hashashin and assassins was always negative when it was brown people being that, but like we can have a conception of assassins and hitmen. And targeted kills that we think is cool. Yeah. It's just, you know, and but it's not ever going to be, like, a suicide bomber or something. Right. It's going to be, like, you know. Keanu some, Reeves. Right. Keanu Reeves in, like, a trench coat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, killing. Or a suit. Killing someone that no one cares about, you know. It's yeah. like, so, um, it's just really uh, interesting way to right. think about the ways that we use history to inform our present. And it's crazy to me that terrorism studies, which, like, is a thing, I guess. It's at my school. Okay. So terrorism studies is a thing that, for some reason, they're not reading these historians of the Nazari who have, you know, dedicated their lives to to parsing out fact from fiction and who admit, yeah, a lot of the stories you heard are true. They did do this. They did do that. They had, you know, they murdered all of these people. And, you mm-hmm. know, yes. Um, it's not like this project of denial. They're they're trying to figure out what the truth is. Um, but the they also found. Are. Right. But they're also finding all of these situations where these connections to terrorism uh, are based on myth. Right. And they're trying to say that. You know, uh, and, but because they're just saying it in historian circles, historians are like, yeah, I know, I know, yep, I agree. <laughs> I read that document also, and that's exactly what I got out of it. Yeah. But terrorism studies people aren't, aren't bothering. I don't really, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't mean to legitimize, delegitimize an entire discipline, but it's like, why? Yeah, I don't. But I do have to say, I've seen an, many BuzzFeed articles that thing about Hashashin. Like, about, mm-hmm. you know, like, I've... The, did you know where we got the word assassin from? It's from these old, uh, these, like, you know, murderous um, mountain men who smoked tons of hashish to get themselves all riled up before they killed someone in public and then were killed themselves. Like, I've heard that so many times. Just, just from... journalists do the same thing, right? They're not digging deep, which is... Again. Right. Have you ever heard of the Nazari before? Mm, no. I mean, I studied the Middle East in undergrad, and I had never heard no, of them. No, I, I also studied I actually wrote my thesis on Syria. It was 20th century Syria. Oh, but, I've never studied Syria, but right. I did general Middle East It's studies, never come yeah. up. No. Um, and I'm sure most people have not heard, have, have heard of the Order of Assassins, and that's also because right. white historians of the Nazari, even though they know they called themselves the Nazari, still called them the Assassins mm. into the 80s. Mm. Um, you know, Bernard Lewis, who, who, was, a, who was a great historian and, and wrote really good history about the Nazari, maybe not perfect, but really good, 
um, still called them the assassins. His book is called The Assassins and called mm-hmm. them that throughout, throughout the book. Right. Before, because he wasn't thinking of it as a derogatory term. Sure. And not thinking that future generations would just start making direct links from 12th century. Right. Like tiny. If you sect think of about Islam how ridiculous to, that is, like, today. like, oh yeah, those Frankish crusader assholes, uh, white people, you know, like we might sort of say that to each other, but like a, a historian's not going to legitimately argue that. And we're also not making policy briefs for the U.S. government based on that. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that joke. We're not like, right, exactly. Right. So it's, yeah, it's weird. Like, I don't think I'm anything like, um, you know, a Knights Templar person. Well, you're <laughs> like, also a woman. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we have no power. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a nice note to end on. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> but our society is nothing like like what Christendom, you know, Christendom. we're trying to rebrand Western world as like a rebrand of Christendom. But it does not exist. And, and sure. You know, and yet we crusade into the Middle East for a lot of the same made up stupid reasons that the crusaders did. So. Right. Because there there are consistencies. And mm-hmm. that's not to say that it's not. But but nobody would would argue that just because I'm an American in the 2000s that I know exactly what life is like in 13th century France. Right. Absolutely no. not. No. Like that is ridiculous. No. Exactly. But. That is what is being argued right, in, in these terrorism studies things. Yeah. Right. Is that, oh, well, they have a long history of this. They've always done this. Oh, like, yeah. That's... Like the ancient hatreds between Jews and Muslims, right? Et cetera. Anyway, sorry for all of the politics and... <gasps> no, never apologize stuff. for politics. Well, politics and uh, military stuff, I know that it's all very confusing. I have studied Middle Eastern history before, and it has never, ever been simple. Always a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, a lot of names. <laughs> yeah, a lot of names, a lot, a lot of, of shifting alliances, a lot mm-hmm. of things, you know, a lot of violence and um, sects and breakoffs and things that, that are just very complex. So thanks for, for sticking it out with us. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Facebook, uh, dig underscore history. Join our secret Order of the Shadows, Dig History, Pod Squad. <laughs> and you can find the transcript and the bibliography for this episode if you want to check out the many books that Marissa used to construct this um, this wonderful story um, at digpodcast.org. And if you're not yet, join our Patreon. Yeah, and I think in the... Um... In the blog post, I think I'm going to do lists of um, assassinations that have been attributed to them and, and stuff like little little things to look at like that. I just didn't want to focus too much on these kind of legends and, and list of kills and all these things because it just continues to sort of perpetuate this this idea about the Hashashin. So I was trying to not do that. But I think there is some cool uh, sort of stuff that the historians have put together that could go along with the episode. So look out for that. All right. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. The Nazaris sought to establish their own independent principality. Motherfucking dog. Often inveigled their way into the... Is that how you say that word? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, is that what you were looking for? Yes, that's okay. what I was looking for. <laughs> Can we... He's tinkering down there. Can we close this? Yes, if you wish to suffocate me, we may close it. I don't, but... A vizier in service to the Seljuks named Kiwam al-Din Nazir B. Oh, Nazir B. Ali. Oh, oh my God! I know it's ridiculous. I mean, it could be machinations. So. I usually say machinations. I don't know how to talk. My friend Joe is gonna kill me, but I have to say this: he is obsessed with Halloween, and so like right after Halloween, he'd be like, "Oh, what am I gonna be next year?" And so one time. It was like, Octo- you know, no October, Halloween happened. And then early November, we're talking. And he's like, I decided what I'm going to be for next Halloween. And we were like, what is it? And he's like, an assassin. And we all just like burst out laughing because we're like, what the fuck does an assassin look like?